Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast with me, your host, James Clark. On this month's episode, we will be speaking to recently elected Alicia Kearns, Member of Parliament for Rutland and Melton, the Conservative candidate for Mayor of London, Sean Bailey, and Ed McGuinness, a former artillery officer and active member of CF Armed Forces. Our first guest, Alicia Kearns, worked in communications roles in the Ministry of Defence, Ministry of Justice and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. She was the lead press officer for the government's communications campaigns in Syria and Iraq for the FCO. She fought the seat of Mitchman Morden in 2017 before being selected for Rutland and Melton in 2019. She's now a member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. So, Alicia, thank you so much for coming on to this, the inaugural uh, CF Armed Forces podcast. Um, obviously, you have a bit of experience um, with the armed forces, um, not just professionally, but personally as well. Can you tell us about that? No, Sean, thank you for having me. It's a great privilege to join you. Join you. So both my grandfathers uh, served in the military. Uh, my English grandfather joined the Navy when he was very, very young before the war and then served in the Corvettes and then on Ark Royal. Um, and he was a chief petty officer in the engine room. And my other grandfather, who was Irish, um, left Dublin uh, during the Second World War and travelled to Belfast, pretended to be a UK citizen so he could sign up to fight the Nazis. And then I'm really proud of him. He served in, uh, with the SAS in France. Um, but obviously devastatingly, as many people will know, when he returned to Ireland, obviously he was discriminated against and treated pretty appallingly and anything like uh, well, the opposite of being a hero, really. Um, so my family have always had uh, a great sense of duty um, in their kind of uh, history. Um, but as you said, I've also worked. I worked at Main Building for the Ministry of Defence. I hope no one holds that against me. Uh, working on the Scottish <laughs> referendum campaign, um, also managing things like nuclear leaks, uh, working on kit, um, and then on working on crisis uh, whenever I was on duty. And then from there, I went to join the Foreign Office, uh, working on counter-terrorism, kind of counter-hostile malign states. Um, and in that role, I was the MILSIV liaison for the Global Coalition Against Daesh. So I spent lots of time working with our allies uh, in Kuwait, in Baghdad, at CENTCOM, um, and I loved it. I mean, it's interesting because I went from the, I was at the Foreign Office um, and I have to say I much preferred working with the army to the diplomats only because. Yes, here, here. Good, good. I'm sure. Well, I'm glad you're I'm sure you're glad to hear that. Well, just because I think when you're when you're with the military, you're in work mode when you're in work mode. And there's a real sense of duty, but also kind of quiet camaraderie. And then once you're off duty, it's really good fun. Um, but obviously, keep it is when you're in work, you say you sit down with your military guys and you say, right. This is the effect we need to achieve. This is the operating you know, environment. These are different things we're kind of thinking. How do we get there? They then come back to you with options. You decide which option you're pursuing and you crack on, you get it done and you measure effect. Whereas with diplomats, quite often, and there are incredible exceptional diplomats, but quite often there's quite a lot of uh, what if, but how this, a lot of uh, long, long emails and discussions um, and I'm quite an action-focused person, so I loved working with the military. Great. I mean, that yeah, that that sums it up. And you and I actually, let's see, we have a, a mutual friend who who served with me in the in the military, George. So there's a little shout out to George from from both of us at this point. I'm, I, I'd like to make he'll he'll yeah um, definitely. So so you've you've obviously had a huge amount of um, experience and the kind of breadth of experiences you've had um, across the, the military and you come across very passionately, very positive. Can you can you nail down 
I mean, you've, you've sort of talked about that can-do attitude, but can you nail down why you think that the, the UK military is valuable and mm-hmm. perhaps maybe just a, a, a very kind of a couple of lines or an overview of why the UK actually should have a, a military deterrent or a, a, a sort of offensive force? Mm. I mean, one of the things I say quite often is the first and foremost job of government, the number one without question, is to keep its people safe. Now, that's not just about the military, but ultimately they are probably the most core component of it. Um, And to keep our people safe, we need offensive capabilities. We also need defensive capabilities. But I would always say that our most important capability is our people. And I think that's going to become even more as we look at the type of threats we face and how the type of kind of warfare we're facing is evolving. But I also think, you know, the army plays a big role, not only protecting us from threats abroad, but actually domestically in times of need. And I remember being at main building uh, during the flooding way back when um, and going out with the army, uh, going out with Patrick Sanders. Um, Shout out to him. I'm sure everyone listening has a big soft spot for him. Uh, And, uh, you know, making sandbag factories, you know, that made an enormous difference to the everyday lives of British nationals. You know, again, in the COVID crisis now, it's the military that are out getting the PPE around. It's operational planners, military planners, who are the ones working out how we get the PPE around. The skill sets that we give the military and that they bring with their can-do attitude help us in so many more ways than just going to war. And I think it's really important. I think sometimes when I meet with young people, they say to me, I say young people, younger people, they say to me, we don't need a military, you know, in a future, no country won't have nation states, we won't have militaries. Well, that's just not uh, in any way feasible because the fundamental concern that people have as individuals is, do I feel safe? And that is ultimately what our most kind of primeval kind of drive is, is keeping ourselves and our loved ones safe. But I think the thing about the military is it's just so much more than dealing with threats and terrorism and hostile states. It's actually about helping us as a country organise, respond to crises, man-made or not. Well, there you go. There is the, the sound. I mean, are you are you also doubling up as the you know on, on um, adverts for the military as well? That was spot on, absolutely perfect. I'm very happy to provide my day rates. That's not a problem. <laughs> I don't think I could afford them. Um, <laughs> um, what's your um, general impression of the forces in the wider public and in the party? Um, and then also thinking about your constituency as well in Rutland and Melton, um, are the forces, you know, supported there? Have you got any bases um, that, that are in Rutland as well? Well, I'll start with the constituency, obviously, as a good constituency MP. Um, and I'm very lucky that in Rutland and Melton, we have an enormously strong affinity with the armed forces. And I'm going to have to try and remember everyone and get it right. Uh, but in Rutland, we have uh, First Military Working Dogs Regiment. Uh, we have two medical regiment based at St George's Barracks. Uh, we also have 2nd Battalion, the Princess of Wales Royal Regiment. Uh, we have 7th Regiment, the Royal Logistic Corps. Uh, they're all at Kendrew Barracks in Cotsmoor. Um, but then I also have the wonderful Melton Mowbray in my constituency where the Defence Animal Training Regiment is based. Um, and what's really lovely is that what you find particularly in Rutland, but actually across the constituency, is that we have a really high number of retired RAF and Army uh, former uh, soldiers and uh, pilots and RAF members who choose to make their lives here once they leave the services because they love the area so much. So I think particularly locally, we have a real sense of uh, gratitude um, a real sense of kind of pride in our armed forces. Um, and I think in terms of the party, I mean, 
there's no question that if you're looking for a party that supports the armed forces, it is the Conservatives. There is no other party that will stand by our men and women and thank them for what they're doing and recognise them and support them adequately. I do worry that there is a job to be done. And actually, I raised this point the other day on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, which is we serve the public. We need to have the trust of the public that what we do when we are serving for them abroad or when we are working for them or keeping them, protect them, that they are behind it. We serve by consent. And I think there's a real issue that there are certain uh, narratives and there are certainly definitely our enemies who are trying to push this narrative domestically that are trying to create a splinter between our armed forces and those those institutions that are part of Great Britain, the armed forces are a core bit of what you think of when you think of Great Britain, I believe. And I think there's a real education piece to be done, particularly with young people in schools. And I think that's why cadet programmes and things like that are so important. We need to make sure that the narrative around the armed forces is one of respect, one of recognition that they do more than just go abroad and kind of engage in uh, keeping us safe and recognise that we do need to make sure we have the right narrative there. And I do worry, particularly going forward, that that's something we're going to have to tackle. Thanks, Alicia. Um, I mean, maybe with, with that in mind, certainly with the public's view of the military, but also actually from your view as a, as a, a politician, as an elected representative, what are your thoughts about the future of the armed forces? You know, the, the SDSR has, has mm. been postponed. You know, we've got to sort of balance spending with utility. Um, you know, have you, got, have you got any idea about the future of the armed forces? And actually, uh, how, how do you think they will be decided um, you know, from the level that you're you're at, you know, with your kind of overview, with your connections and your understanding, how will the future of the armed forces be shaped? Mm. So I have to say, I don't I don't know what the current thinking is. I haven't been able to be involved with it as yet. But obviously being on the Foreign Affairs Committee, I'm hoping to have a chance to try and shape it in some way. Um, but I do think there is a fundamental rethink needed. And I'm desperately hoping that this review is going to be that. So I'm really pleased that we've put it off, that we've paused it. You know, we shouldn't be trying to plan the future of our security whilst tackling the greatest pandemic or threat this country's faced since the Second World War. Mm. Um, but I think for me, it all comes back to that concept of hybrid warfare. You know, gone are the days of easily distinguishing between wartime and peacetime, offensive defensive capabilities, state, non-state actors. You know, our adversaries have steadily built this capacity to blend all those categories together. And we just haven't done it. And we are still far too caught up in bureaucratic kind of nonsense. And our, whilst our enemies are using every possible tool and technique to attack us at all possible levels because they're unrestrained by government bureaucracy. Now, that isn't to say that we need to scrap legal kind of restrictions and controls. Um, but we need to recognise that the threats we face are uniformly hybrid. And when we're attacked by our enemies... It's an economic level, a cultural level, informational, diplomatic, cyber, criminal, civil society. It's at all levels to achieve the strategic intent they have or the world order they want. And it isn't simply about adding cyber warfare to our artillery, which is what everyone unfortunately defaults to. Um, rather, there are so many more ways in which antagonists are trying to disrupt and influence the UK. And, you know, for example, soft power can have hard consequences and there is no one battle space. So I think ultimately we need to completely reconsider that essentially in a digital age, we have, I would call it kind of the democratisation of information where hybrid warfare is how we're fighting and every single person and individual can have a role to play. You know, that's why we see tiny individuals in the middle of nowhere able to force project across the world and influence kind of thoughts and processes of entire countries. And that's why I think 
if I was to be asked what I'd want to do with the strategic review, it would be completely pivot away from the concept of hybrid warfare as some kind of add-on, um, but instead recognising that actually now I would argue, and many people disagree, that traditional kinetic warfare is now simply a constituent part of a much broader strategy of influence. And so to keep our people safe, we need to completely change what we're doing. And we need to invest in hybrid offensive and defensive capabilities and focus ruthlessly on how we protect people, um, our own people. And a lot of that as well requires that kind of moving away from kind of accusations of kind of tanks on lawns, which having worked on supposedly the foremost government priority, counterterrorism, defeating Daesh in Iraq and Syria, there was just too much of that kind of nonsense. Our enemies don't make distinctions between kind of offensive and defensive, hybrid, non-hybrid. We just need to kind of see hybrid warfare as the entire lens through which we influence and counter-influence, you know, organise, focus and fight and protect our people. At so, least that's my two cents. <laughs> yes. Gosh, yeah. I mean, did you read that from a script or, or no, did you I just, did you just that? I um, hope it all made sense. I, yeah, yeah, I, I think that, that made complete, that made that made total sense. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think very, very well considered and, and, and just proves the depth and understanding of your knowledge. Um, just bouncing off of that answer, you, you, that was um, a kind of a hardware focused answer, um, which I asked for. Um, but one of the things that I discuss when we hold um, uh, Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces events and something that kind of bubbles away, I think, is a is a, an identification that and you and you sort of made this distinction that that our quote unquote enemies or potential you know foreign states who have um, who are in competition with the UK in various sectors and who might resort to either hard or soft power to assert their, their authority or their power over us, they have a, or they seem to portray a, a distinct longer term strategy. They have an outcome. They, I, and, you, and you used the, um, the phrase in your answer, um, oh God, I can't remember, but you used a, used a really good phrase for it in your uh, previous response about what they were hoping to get out of any mm. kind of conflict or any kind of um, competition. Do you think that the UK maybe, as well as um, bringing hybrid warfare into its thinking as the, the mainstream overarching um, kind of doctrine, do you think that we also need to have a look at what we want to achieve on a global scale and look at a sensible timeline for trying to achieve that rather than as I think we frequently do in the sort of four or five year um, election cycle. I couldn't agree more. You are completely bang on. And I think that was my kind of eternal frustration, having seen two of our kind of big government departments, is that we are so rarely focused on what outcomes we want to achieve and what effects we want to achieve. And we need, it was really interesting. So we had a really fantastic uh, 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 a person from the Australian government come and spend a few months with us in the counter Daesh unit. And when he left, he said, look, I've got one piece of advice for all of you. My piece of advice is Australia. You know, we're not the biggest country in the world, which I'm not sure I quite agree with. But anyway, uh, but he said, you know, we are very focused on what can we achieve internationally and where do we need to achieve it? And why do we need to achieve it in order to protect our people and achieve the goals that we have as a country? Yeah. And he said quite often, he said, having seen your system inside it for six months to a year, 
it feels like the UK is everywhere and in every single arena, every single theatre, just kind of involved. We've got we have immediate kind of priorities and immediate focus and kind of short term outcomes of, you know, in the next three years. And often it has to do with the CSSF um, funding cycle. You know, these are our goals for the next three years. But that big picture, what are our outcomes? What is our strategic world intent? What are we trying to achieve? And actually also having the confidence, and I do think it's confidence, to say we don't need to be involved in every single arena. So I I couldn't agree with you more. We have to get far more outcome focused because all our enemies have gone, this is our outcome. You know, so for example, for Russia, it might be let's isolate the UK from its main um, alliances um, because actually I think our allies are one of the things that is a real point of difference for us from Russia. You know, let's isolate them from their allies. Let's cause discontent within their own populations and mistrust of their government. Let's separate them from the EU. Let's separate them from the NA- from NATO. Um, let's cause distrust there. They, they've worked out what they need to do to achieve their ultimate outcome we don't look big picture enough at all. And that's also because we've got all these different government departments and all these different teams working and they all put together these highly bureaucratic documents. But ultimately, none of them, I don't think, are ever truly pulled together to go, right, what is our strategic focus internationally to keep our people safe and secure our objectives? Our second guest, Sean Bailey, is the Conservative candidate for Mayor of London. He co-founded the youth charity My Generation and worked as a researcher at the Centre for Policy Studies before standing in Hammersmith at the 2010 general election. He served as the Prime Minister's Special Advisor on Youth and Crime from 2010 to 2013. He contested Lewisham West and Penge in the 2017 general election and cites his time in the cadets as a huge influence on his life. Sure. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm going to kick off with this first question. Just can you run through some a little bit about yourself and your biography for those um, who are you know members and friends of CF Armed Forces who haven't met you at some of the events you've joined us at? Um, firstly, let me say hello to you all and thank you for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure to talk to CF of the Armed Forces because, I mean, the military link I have, little though it is, has been very important to me. If I give you a little bit of my backstory, I am your sort of standard Londoner. I, you know, I'm the I'm the grandson of immigrants. My granddad fought for Britain in the Second World War and then came back as part of the Windrush to help rebuild the country. It's a very important and proud part of, of our sort of family relationship with Britain. I'm what they call second generation. I was born here. Um, I was born in, in Paddington. Um, I lived in Labrick Grove. Um, I was raised by my mother, my brother and I just raised my mother, um, raised my brother and I. Um, the classic things of sort of having little to no money um, and, and struggling through that, through the 70s, etc. But my mum is, um, is a determined lady and she believes in giving back. So she always said, get involved in your community. One of my mum's tactics to get me involved, but also keep me away from some of them um, less... Um, favourable um, young people I knew was to put me into the army cadets. For me personally, that was an absolute game changer. Um, you know, you're all in the armed forces. You you won't need me to tell you how this all works. But at the time, young black boy, growing up in Leverett Grove, from poor background, avoiding crime, avoiding gang membership, 
these things are really important and and the sort of basic message of self self-belief self-control and self-worth that i was getting from my um cadets and sort of military contacts was incredible to me um, it meant that i started to pay a little bit more attention in school let's just say school was um yeah school was a challenging time for me but once i got into the army cadets um teacher uh, a teacher i met probably 10 15 years ago pointed out to me my attitude changed overnight and it meant that i could then go on and get involved in in youth work and i now became a security guard to work my way through university those two things were important because the youth work thing was was part of that i think i got that again from from people i was meeting in the army who, um, cause my cadet unit was attached to 10 para. And I think they were the whole idea of giving back to your community, helping those who need the help and that organizational, organizational push and, and, and sort of direction, having, having a, a shared goal was important to me. And I brought that to my youth work. I then went on to become a security guard. And one of the things that really stuck out for me from, from the army was the amount of courses that, that soldiers do. And that was something I sort of brought into my life because I thought, well, if I was a soldier at this point, I'd be doing a course. And eventually the course I wound up on was university and I have a degree in computer aided engineering. And that's a direct link to the idea that, you know, as a soldier, you gain additional skills as well, not just your soldiering skills. And for me, that 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 was really important. I spent 20 odd years as a youth worker. Um, I then went on and did things in, in other parts of my community. I, I, I helped elderly people. I, I was a chair. Of an organization called the pepper pot which um looks after elderly people i went on and became a research fellow for the center for policy studies um what else did i did uh i of course i shouldn't forget i stood for the conservative party in 2010 in in hammersmith that was my first sort of real run at politics i again did in 2017 in newsham western penge i'm on the london assembly i'm elected member of the london assembly and I'm the mayoral candidate for London now, the 2021 election, which is, um, I think all of that came from my association with military personnel and cadets and stuff, because that's why I learned driving and, and the idea that you get up in the morning and you get it done. Can do attitude. Sure, that is just an inspirational story. And I, I don't know about any of the listeners, but I've got, you know, like the, the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up. The way you talk about how the the army and the discipline and the that giving you a sense of self-worth that is just fantastic that you had that experience and I'm so glad and pleased for you and it and it has obviously driven you on to do some just extraordinary things so I mean what a what a biography I mean that, that is just that is incredible um moving on um then we're obviously facing a bit of a a, a bit of a global um catastrophe crisis challenge um the pandemic can you talk a little bit about your experience of the lockdown um sort of how it's affected you personally how it's affected the the campaign so if, if i talk about the lockdown i'll, I'll break it into three things is my personal life the campaigning life and my political life and, and i'll show you how the campaign and, and, and my political life is slightly different so on a personal level i have two children i'm married to ellie we have two children homeschooling has been an utter nightmare yes, <laughs> it's, let's be very clear about that we have a 10 and a 13 year old i think our 13 year old has 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 taken to it like a duck to water our 10 year old has needed a lot more convincing let's just say that but i i, I my day job means that i i very rarely get home for 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 um bedtimes i miss a lot of family time so being 
home in this way on a personal level has 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 allowed me to reconnect to my family, which I've really appreciated. It's meant challenges for other parts of my family. Um, my mother is a serious asthmatic and has been um, self-isolating for over five weeks now, so two weeks before anybody else really. And that's been tough because she's not enjoying that. Um, and we've had to look after her. We've had members of our family um, die from COVID, which, which of course is not, which is not, not particularly nice. I'm sorry to hear that, Sean. That's, yeah. that's, really, that's really tough. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, on a on a campaigning point of view, um, the, Boris closed down campaigning immediately. The party stopped all official campaigning, and I think that's correct because this is a now a now about Britain, not about the Conservative Party. I think one of our proudest boasts is that we are for the country. There, there's a there's a patriotism here that means yes, we will act for the country first. And I think stopping point scoring politics is exactly the right way to go. So mm -hmm. be involved in that. But what it's meant is, of course, my entire mayoral run has been suspended by a year, has been put back, which has changed the complexion of everything. So I've had to reorganise my team. I've had to re-engage people for not two months, but for 14 months. And I've been doing that process in the background. It's been very good. I've been I've, I've run a ring around campaign where I've run just literally hundreds of people from local from London Conservatives, which has actually been um, an eye opener. I am now doing a series of town hall meetings, virtual, um, on Zoom, where I come together with, with any given association across London, their members log in and I answer questions about London and politics in general, which has been, um, which has been really good. And, it, and it's, it's, it's campaigning without doing politics. People are still very interested in what politics has to offer. And of course, it means that people who are associated with the Conservative Party can speak to a Conservative member who can then go on and influence the mayor. And that brings me to my third, um, my third category, my political life, because of course, as a elected member, I still have the right and the duty to hold the mayor to account. And speaking to people from the party and also beyond the party, because I've done a lot with local organisations on the ground about their fears, their worries and the tactics they're using to live through the, the, the lockdown. I've been then able to bring that to the mayor through the press, through official lines, through City Hall and, and just writing to the mayor to make sure things are happening. If I gave you an example of that, it was it was me who wrote to the mayor and said, you've got to temporarily temporarily suspend the congestion charge and the ULES charge so that our key workers can drive in and um, um, and social isolate. It was me who said to the mayor, you must get PPE for for um, transport staff. He hasn't done that yet. I hope he does, but I, I, I really hope he does that very quickly. It was me who said we need to do something particular around domestic violence, because as a youth worker, you see that domestic violence is the hidden horror, one of the hidden horrors of Britain. But normally people cope by going to work, going to school, etc. With that removed, something terrible could happen. Let's get involved in that. But the two last pieces, my campaigning life and my political life, have been mixed because people who are from my campaigning life have been telling me things that happening locally that I've been then presenting to the mayor to make sure he, we get the changes we need in London. That's fantastic, Sean. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very clearly communicated. I, that's 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 great and well done for holding the mayor to account. I mean, as a Londoner myself, um, keep keep it up. Somebody needs to. Yeah. Um, um, we've. Um, I, I don't know if you've been clapping for carers on a Thursday evening. I tell you, I've been clapping for the carers, and I tell you what's been really, really 
comforting about that. I, I live in a little brand new Lego estate and we're just next to the park and there's other houses on the side of the park. People are clapping so loudly, you could hear them from the other side of the park. Yeah. Um, most of my neighbors are from other places. So South India, we've got a guy from Afghanistan. Um, we've got a few Yorkshiremen on my road as well. <laughs> the Independent Republic of Yorkshire. <laughs> There's a few of those here as well. <laughs> but but what was really interesting is how they all came out unprompted and clapped. And it, and it just reminded me that it is a very British tradition to be together, isn't it? The history of Britain is, is, is a makeup of a number of nations, a number of regions. And that night I saw it, no matter what our political differences may have been, not may be or be not, uh, our ethnic makeup, whatever, we realised that as a nation, we have a pandemic to sort out. There's certain people going beyond beyond the call of duty and we need to support them. And I really, I really enjoyed the fact that everybody felt the need to come out. And it leads me to one of my, if there's a silver lining in all of this, it's funny because although we're socially distancing, I do find that people, you, you kind of talk to people who, who maybe you wouldn't have talked to beforehand. I stood in a queue for, for um, my local Tesco's, which is a vast Tesco's, a huge queue. And people were sort of shouting and talking to each other, messages of support. And I thought, you know what, generally talk, speaking, we wouldn't speak to each other. So that I hope that they, this is bringing us together with that sort of Dunkirk spirit, the, the, the spirit that is Britishness to to, to get through a, a major crisis. That's what I hope. Yeah, I, and I and I feel the same. And I've had some very odd experiences. Like uh, I've been running around my local park for the last sort of three years, and in the last couple of weeks is the only time when anyone has said hello or good morning or yeah. smiled. Yeah. And that actually ties you into the community in something that. You know, obviously, you're very passionate about with your your kind of London centric view, but which I think across the country, everyone is kind of feeling that more that sort of sense of of togetherness. And moving on from that, obviously, we there's a, there's a lot of focus on the NHS at the moment. Um, but you know, Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces, we're interested in in the, the sort of in, in the military. And I was wondering if you know during this time and actually during your your time campaigning, because obviously you've done an awful lot of campaigning throughout your life. Um, whether there are any specific military kind of values or things that you've you've you learnt from your experiences with the military and in, in, in the cadets, whether you think that they can kind of be brought to politics, you know, whether there are these kind of these values that, that you think you can you can apply to politics as well as to the military and perhaps to, to coronavirus and, and other challenges. I think in answer to that, I'd say I'd say three things. I think firstly, sometimes people in the military, it's your day job, you know, and I think you sometimes underestimate the, the, the enormity, the power, um, the usefulness of, of what you do just getting along. Now, we often talk about the military when something has spectacularly gone wrong or right, but I think the power of the military is, is it's just day-to-day -day operation. If you look at Corona, for instance, one of the tough questions, the NHS have been absolutely great, but one of the tough questions the NHS and the civil service are going to have to answer is their very poor logistics response. Some of the, 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 the lack of testing, the lack of PPE has been around that. And I believe, I mean, we all know now that the armed forces are involved in solving that problem. But I believe the armed forces tactics should be part of how they conduct themselves ordinarily. And then we'd be in, a we'd be in a, an advanced position than what we are now. And of course, if you're the quartermaster or you're, 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 you're 
an officer in charge of that kind of stuff. To you, it's just work, you get up, you get it done. I wonder if you've actually considered just how, how well we do it as, as an armed forces. Of course, we'll always want more equipment. Of course, we, we, we need more money. We want more manpower or, or girl power. We, we always want those things. But pound for pound, the British military is the best in the world at any given problem solving task that needs to be done. And I think the rest of politics, the rest of us, of our civil service um, has a lot of lessons it could be learning from our military. Um, how the IRF um, quickly got planes into the air to get to Turkey to collect PPE, how the army talk about where you store things, how you do your just in time deliveries, all these kind of things, I think are conversations that the wider, um, the wider public services need now to be having with the military. I think from a campaigning point of view, I actually think it's camaraderie. When you, when you, I've, I've done a lot of campaigning, you know, I've been out on a rainy Wednesday night and what makes that worth doing is people. And one thing the military does is have a laugh. You know, I've been out with people, it's been ridiculous, it's been raining on our, on our canvassing sheets, the ink's all over the place and actually it's been the best canvassing um, night we've had. Why? Because we've stuck together in a big group rather than being split up and isolated. We've made sure that people are having fun. We've trained, and that's another key thing the army does well, the military does well, is train new people so that they build confidence and they come back. We've trained people and, and that's made them more comfortable so they're more likely to return and help us out again in the future. But ultimately it's the camaraderie, it's the fact that well you're part of something that's bigger than you. And, and, and for me on a very personal level, when I grew up, gang membership was really beginning to take off. And the two things that the military did that gangs, that, that they gave you protective factors from gangs was one, it was cool to be in your army uniform. When I was in my cadet uniform, that was probably the only thing that in the eyes of my local gang member was, 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 it was cool enough, it was tough enough. And secondly, I was hanging around with men primarily, and some women as well, but primarily men who were tough in a constructive way. You know, who, who, you know, I remember once um, there was a Lance Corporal from Tempara. I'm going back some 30 odd years. I think his name was Lindsay. We were having a conversation about who's the toughest man in the world. Was it Mike Tyson? Da, 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 da. He said to us as a group of young boys, mainly black boys, he said a very powerful thing. He said the toughest man in the world is a man who goes to work every morning and feeds his family. And for me, that statement was mind blowing because tough to me at that point of him, who could punch who? When he said that, that that changed my view on the entire universe. And it's things like that, that you get from being in a well-connected, because of course the military is very good at networks, personal and professional. And, and there's a wisdom there because you're in an organization that's bigger than you and has deep historical roots. Oh, Sean, this is just great listening to you. It's just really, really powerful stuff. And I wish we could go on all day, but unfortunately, I think I'm going to try and draw us to a close a little. Um, but I would really like you to um, to tell us a bit more about your plans for campaigning when we are back to normal, how people can follow you and get into your, um, your campaigning groups and how they can engage with you. Um, because, you know, off the back of this interview, you know, I am really looking forward to coming out and delivering leaflets or doing whatever it is you need. Um, and, I, and I think there'll be lots of people who listen to this and think, you know, the same thing. So how can we sort of get in touch with you um, over the course of the next few months and, and help you with your campaign? So the whole point of my campaigning activities going on now will be actually to be go, go beyond just being a conservative member. This is about conservatism. Um, I'll, 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 I'll give it to you in this sense. 
Um, my granddad fought in the Second World War. I, I, I my mum waited quite a long time to announce that fact to me. I was so proud when she told it to me. But very recently, she gave me a picture of him on the beach in Italy and also two medals that he has, right? which just just rocks my world. Wow, um, awesome. It, it really was awesome. It really I, it's a real proud moment for me. But why I say that to you, because that is about collective activity. And that's what conservatism is. It's about collective activity. It's about freedom and it's about supporting people who generally need the help. So that's what I'll be talking about. And if people want to get involved in that conversation and my campaigning conversation has, I hope, a uniqueness in that I'm prepared to listen. Being a politician is about leadership, but good leadership is about courting other people's value, um, opinions before you, you you put your stake in the sand and say we're going in this direction. So there's there's two things I'd say. Firstly, get involved with the mayoral campaign through your local association. If you're outside of London but you work in London or something like that, just join up on on seanforlondon.uk. Come onto my website and join up. Follow me on Twitter, Sean Bailey UK. AM on Twitter, I'm sure, at Sean Bailey UK um, AM on Twitter. Just follow me because then you'll get the messages and hear, hear, hear what I'm talking about. Retweet the stuff I'm doing. You know, let, let people on the left hear our genuine, realistic heart for not just London, but British people in, in, in general. That's, that's what I'd say, get involved. It, that, that's the way to get involved. Let people know who we really are because there's a lot of false talk about the Conservative Party and I, and I think our strength is we are willing to change, we are for the country and we are for the independent freedom of people to live well. That's what conservatism means for me. So if you if that rings a bell with you, that's the way to, to get involved. Come out and campaign for us. And the other thing I'd say, ask your association to organise a town hall meeting with Sean over video chat and then we can really have an exchange of views and ideas. I can tell you where I'm going, what I intend to do and why I'm desperate for us to win in London. London is the centre of the country and we should be at the centre of the conversation. I have one last plea as well. I have I have I have got a lot of time for conservative friends of the armed forces. I'm I'm so, I'm so pleased when I heard that you exist. And my challenge to you is to make sure it's not only officers. Let's get rank and file in here because the real power of the Conservative Party is when we have the greatest social spread. The breaking of the Red Wall was about um, people who had traditionally been separated from us, hearing from us. Let's continue that conversation. And one of the key ways to do that is through the armed forces, for the armed forces to be leading on, on the on the social side of politics. And that means an organization called Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces becomes gold dust. And the way to increase the, the power of that gold dust is to make sure that you're spread across all the ranks so that we can court their opinion and support everybody in every part of the armed forces. Sean, that is a fantastic uh, idea, a great thing to end on. Uh, appreciate the advice and we will definitely do as much as we can to get more rank and file into the organisation and supporting candidates like yourself on their political journeys in the future. Our third and final guest is Ed McGuinness. Ed was an officer in the British Army from 2013 to 2018 and on leaving the army became chair of his local association in 2019. He was the 2019 general election candidate in Hornsey and Wood Green and is currently head of events for Conservative Progress as well as being a ward chairman in Battersea.
Outside of politics, Ed works for an international bank. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Um, first question, or, or more of a you know a statement or whatever, but can you can you tell us a bit about your background, um, your political journey, and then finally um, a little bit about how you've been involved in CFAF, maybe some of the events that you've been to. Yeah, so thanks, James, for inviting me on this this podcast. It's it's really good and it's a pleasure. Um, yeah, so as you can probably tell from my accent, I was born in in Northern Ireland, where the politics are slightly different from traditional conservative Labour politics in the rest of the UK. It's much more sort of when I was growing up, it was much more sort of fraught and divisive and based around single issues. And I guess. Uh, it sort of stems from where my values started rather than where my politics started. I went to a non-denominational school um, which had really strong values of sort of public service, integrity, respect for others, no matter what their their background is. Um, And then as I was growing up, I got very interested in the mechanics of politics. So, you know, the traditions around sort of Black Rod during the state opening parliament. how the Queen sort of interacts with Parliament. I find that quite fascinating. But then through my military career, uh, that's when my politics sort of uh, sort of coalesced, um, and I find my views aligning uh, much more with the Conservative Party, particularly in terms of economic prudence and you know aspiration uh, within society. And then when I left the military, I wanted to do some more public service and actually met you quite shortly after leaving the military and we um we discussed you know your journey and, and how interesting that was and and through that and then joined my association and, and the rest is history i guess we might talk about that later but in terms of uh, cfaf you know it's a it's an extraordinary you've been an, an extraordinary uh leader of it and I've been to a number of events and I'm, I'm really interested in the sort of policy meetings that you hold um, uh, uh, and uh, you know, they're fascinating and, and, and really interesting. And I think it's a really good organization because armed forces members have an innate set of characteristics that are sort of valuable in today's politics, you know, integrity, teamwork and comradeship. And I think CFAF really allows all those kinds of things to, to be in one place. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we're what we're trying to do. Obviously, we've got our our three kind of stated um, aims of engaging with um, reservists and and um, regulars and veterans and trying to get them involved in politics, um, and then also uh, obviously supporting um, candidates uh, and and also um, you know being a kind of a conduit or a link between. Um, the membership and MPs on Armed Forces Matters. Um, but, but I mean, obviously throughout your, I mean, you, you sort of skimmed over your political journey a bit there, um, but, but you, I know that you've done, um, you've done a lot of campaigning in your role as both the Islington chairman and then uh, when you fought in the, uh, the election in uh, December uh, 2019 as a candidate. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, both those roles that you've done um, and then also maybe if you could try and sort of talk us through some of the things you've learned from the military uh, that you maybe applied to campaigning. Yeah, so uh, 
so yeah, I, I totally agree and align with the, the values that you, or the aims that you put forward uh, about CFAF and, um, and how it sort of uh, seeks to, to help um, candidates and activists out there uh, with a sort of military background. And, and like you said, I, I, I was sort of thrown in at the deep end. I, I joined Islington Conservatives in February of 2018 and within less than a year I was the chairman um, and you know it was it was a pretty pretty quick rise through a number of positions within that association and um, I'd say it just goes to show if you throw yourself into something like people in the military are prone to doing where you give a real effort uh, your your efforts can can yield sort of results um, and Islington is a is a very interesting place to campaign as you know you you fought two general elections there and it's it's a it's a very different place to other parts of the country um, <laughs> but, but yeah it's, it, it's a fantastic place to learn um and a fantastic place to to meet people who really you know there are people there who who really align with conservative values and i think um i think it's a real uh, opportunity next year with the mayoral elections to to sort of um give those people a voice but yeah and then i was i was um fortunate enough to be the conservative candidate in Hornsey and green a fantastic opportunity for me but also like i said the, the people of london are crying out for for a conservative voice and you know it was an absolute honor to to represent that um in North london and then I'd just like to give a shout out actually to uh, the chairman there who was you know, incredibly welcoming and the association there who were, who were amazing, you know, in the short campaign. I know it was it was a it was sort of quickly thrown together and um, everyone sort of pulled pulled in the same direction, which is which is amazing. Then that, that brings me on to sort of the two points that that um, I would emphasize the people who were candidates and and some of which has come from the military the first is i guess practical in terms of you've got to have a plan so you've got to know what you're doing every day for the six weeks up to election day and you've got to make that plan with the people that you're going to be going out with with the association so they have buy-in as well um because if you don't have a plan then you don't have any focus and it's um the plan can change you know no plan survives first contact but um but i think it's essential to to have one and then the second one is really you know a skill set the military gives you is, is empathy and um you meet so many people in your time in the military of really different backgrounds and and uh and experiences that that you can't you physically and emotionally and mentally can't um, sort of imagine what it's like to be them, but what you can do is is empathise with their issues and empathise with their concerns. And I think that's a that's a real skill that sort of military people can bring to a political sphere. So so that's what I try to do, and that's why I think politicians who show a lot of empathy are really successful, both you know, in their careers, but also for their constituents. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people, if you ask them to describe, um, you know, someone who's got a military background, 
they, they probably wouldn't say empathy in their top two or three or even five points. But it's a really, really important point and a really uh, important point, as you've said, to bring to, to modern politics. So thank you for, for raising that and bringing that up. Um, Ed, you you were the first contributor to our new regular series of blog posts, um, and you wrote uh, the blog that came out in the April newsletter. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, what what you were, you know, the subject and what what sort of uh, sentiment you were trying to get across? Yes, yeah, Stu. Thanks so much for for inviting me to to be the first um, the first poster for for the new regular blog. I guess in my piece, I was trying to get across two things. The first was, I think, pretty clear in uh, in the piece, which was um, the military always steps in uh, at last resort, as it should, and as is the whole raison d'etre of the military. And in those times, the public see it on the streets or in the news, and they perceive it as being, you know, hugely positive, which it is. Um, but in actual fact, as CDS was saying, Earlier in the week, uh, the military is in constant activity around the globe, you know, defending the homeland, interests overseas, humanitarian work, etc. That that sort of sometimes doesn't get the consistent recognition that it that it needs, you know, either in the public sphere or in government. You know, it's a it's a huge part of what's going on and bubbling on underneath the surface. And I think it's important for the government to recognize that. And then the second more subtle point was sort of about capacity. The military is a really good example of a of a service of a public service that is essentially an organization solely about capacity i mentioned obviously where the militaries around the globe doing things but there's always a reserve held in case something occurs like coronavirus that you need to action and in fact one of the major things they teach in the military is always generate a reserve always try to generate other capacity and i think after this is over, the the review needs to sort of understand how we build serious capacity in other public services and recognize that just because you have capacity doesn't equate to being a waste because you're not using it. It is actually in itself a huge asset. And, and that is just hugely, hugely relevant to the issue that's uh, that's going on at the moment, particularly with coronavirus and the, um, the intensive care unit beds, um, you know, have building that capacity at the Nightingale hospitals, even though we're not using it, that, that doesn't make it a wasted effort. That, that makes it, you know, a, a good thing to hold in reserve. And as you've said, the military has this capacity, but we need to respect the fact that it's not always constantly being used. And that doesn't mean that it's therefore not necessary. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, really, really good. And I really, really enjoyed um, reading the post and, and thanks for thanks for writing it. You've been listening to the CF Armed Forces podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and you join us for the next month. Goodbye.